0: Last week, we looked at Exodus chapter 14, verses 15 through 22. I had originally intended to get to the end of chapter 14, but time constraints caused me to end the message at verse 22 instead of all the way down to 31. In the verses we did manage to cover, we saw how God cared for the children of Israel and met all their needs as they passed through the Red Sea to the far shore on dry land with walls of water on their left and their right. The pillar of cloud and fire which had led them faithfully to the shores of the Red Sea now moved from the front to the back to act as a rear guard against the enemies, uh, the armies of Pharaoh and Egypt. To the Egyptians... the the cloud was a pillar of darkness so that they could not attack Israel waiting there on the shore. To the children of Israel, the pillar gave light, showing them the miraculous pathway God provided through the sea, even in the darkness of night. Even though the passage is rich with principles of truth showing us the heart of God towards his people, some of which we talked about, The central idea that we did not want to stray too far from was the picture the crossing of the Red Sea gives us of the salvation God has provided through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the crossing of the Red Sea was not a quiet peaceful stroll it was accompanied by lightning and thunder the ground quaked and the wind blew similarly The death of Christ was not a quiet, peaceful affair, but one marked by Jesus' anguish in Gethsemane, his mistreatment and torture, and finally his death by crucifixion. But for you and I, as we are immersed in him, immersed in his death, we are also immersed in him as far as, As eternal life is concerned and he carries us through unto salvation on the other side I've titled today's message no loose ends because God doesn't leave loose ends when he accomplishes his work and so we're going to look at the end of the chapter that I wanted to finish last week and just so that you guys can have uh, some relief it should be a reasonably short message Uh, Because I only had so many verses to work with. So you guys get to be out of here early. Aren't you thankful for that? But uh, I'll do my best to ramble on and keep you here as long as we can. We will start, though, with reading Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 23, which is in the middle of a chapter, but it'll give us a kind of a running start into the, the main part of our text. Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 23 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels, so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, The sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand, and on their left so the lord saved israel that day out of the hand of the egyptians and israel saw the egyptians dead on the seashore thus israel saw the great work which the lord had done in egypt so the people feared the lord and believed the lord and his servant moses let's pray Father in heaven, we are grateful once again for this incredible text that you have given to us this morning We are grateful for the many blessings that you have poured out on your people We are grateful for The difficulties even that many of us are going through trials and troubles I pray especially for those that are um, experiencing trials and difficulties that Uh, are making life uncomfortable for them this morning. They feel an angst or an anxiety this morning. I ask that this text would bring them comfort by your spirit. For those of us who are uh, not experiencing these difficulties right now, we know that they are coming. We ask that this text would be an encouragement to us today and a bulwark for the times of troubles when they do come. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So God deals with the Egyptian army in those first six verses or so. As you may or may not have noticed, even though I brought it up, today's passage begins in the middle of a paragraph, and it begins with the word, and. I did that on purpose, so that we could carry forward with the train of thought We left off with last week. For those of you that might have missed it, they are all available online if you want to listen and just kind of um, keep up with the story. I've tried to imagine what is taking place in today's passage in a way that is consistent with the text of Scripture. Hopefully it helps us better understand what happened on the ground there at the Red Sea. And I continue to do this with the book of Exodus because One of the primary keys to understanding scripture or any written text for that matter is to understand the text in the way that the original readers or hearers of the text would have understood it. That's a primary goal in understanding any text, but it's especially important when we are reading scripture. We need to understand it the best of our ability the way the original people receiving that text would have understood it. In fact, it's such a fundamental law of exegesis that it must be followed before we make any application of the text to our current lives. I used a big word there, exegesis, and it's a a word that maybe Bible scholars are familiar with, but the average person doesn't run into this word regularly, so I've just given us a couple of definitions. Um, These are just my own definitions to try and be helpful this morning. Exegesis simply means reading out of the text what the original author intended. Reading out of the text what the original author intended. Rather than its opposite, which, which is eisegesis, and that means reading into the text what a person thinks it means based on current events. To the best of our ability, we want to read out of the text what the original author intended. Now, with scripture, that's a unique challenge because scripture has two original co-authors. In this case, Moses and God. And we want to understand what Moses meant. We want to understand what God meant. It is a dangerous trap to fall into, is to read a text and primarily think of that text. What does this text mean to me today? That's fine later on. But what we want to begin with is what did the original text mean to the people that received it in the first place and then make application? And so I just want to reinforce that idea this morning as you're reading your scriptures, start with what the text means. Read out of it what God has and then by his spirit, he can make application to what we need today. Because his book is a living book. So the children of Israel. You can go to the next slide there Josiah. So the children of Israel. Are on a vast beach. There it is. Remember that one I showed you a while ago. They're on this vast beach. I, I think it was this one. It it doesn't have to be this. I, I used it as an example. Um, on the shore of the Red Sea. In front of them. That would be toward the viewer of that picture. To the east sits the sea itself. To the north, that would be uh, to the uh, north, south, west. That would be to the, uh, your right hand side of the picture. Um, and the south and the west, you can see the rugged terrain that lay there. There was no getting through that. The one exception is the narrow passageway. You can see where the sand washes down. They've made little bulwarks there now. You can see where the sand washes down and spreads out into two fingers, so that the sand doesn't wash into that nice um, resort that you guys are sending me to. I mean that that is built there. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but you can see it's got that one uh, little uh, pathway that goes down from the center of the Sinai Peninsula out toward the Red Sea. So that's the only exception. That's the way in and that's the way out. Um, And they walked, the, the children of Israel walked through there to arrive at their current location, standing on that seashore. And that passageway is now filled with the Egyptian army. God moves in the Pillar of Cloud to block the Egyptians from getting to the beach. So I'm guessing, um, and this is just a guess, but he could have moved that pillar of cloud up to where those mountains are, kind of, so that they wouldn't have a chance to get to that beach. They were kind of clogged up in that pass, that meandering passageway. So God moves and um, blocks the Egyptians from getting to the beach while during the darkness of the night, the other side of that cloud... Um, he miraculously divides the Red Sea so that Israel can cross on dry land and provide light for them to do so. At some point during the crossing, and verse 24 of today's set text says, during the morning watch, that's the, that's the word that it uses. And so that is between about 4 a.m. and 6 a.m there is enough light or the the pillar has moved forward following the egyptian uh, following the israelites at a distance in such a way that the egyptians can now see that israel is no longer on the beach and has traveled through the red sea to the far shore or is at least getting close once the egyptian army has begun their pursuit of israel through the waters and are well into the midst of the sea God slows down their progress by causing the wheels to fall off the chariots. The Egyptians realize that Jehovah is fighting for Israel and they try to fall back in retreat. But with horses and wheelless chariots and, and the wheels that fell off kind of strewn in their way, it is much too late. God commands Moses again to stretch out his hand and the sea crashes in on the Egyptians, destroying all those who entered the sea. Thus ends the greatest deliverance of any nation in the history of mankind. And now that we have the original meaning, as best as we can get it there, we can begin to look more specifically at some of the details, and now we can make application to our understanding of our deliverance in Christ and our lives today as a result of his work. So let's look at these chariot wheels to start with. Oh, we're way in there now. Look at that. You can go way back to to 1A. I don't want to give away the end of the story. (laughs) 1A, let's look at these chariot wheels. God miraculously worked on the side of Israel against the Egyptians. We've read, just moments ago, the miraculous historical event in our passage, but what can we learn today from this inspired text? Well, first off, if you thought the enemy of your soul would stop pursuing you just because you left the world, spiritual Egypt, behind, you are sorely mistaken. Just because Satan couldn't prevent you escaping slavery from sin, doesn't mean he has given up on making your life as miserable and as full of suffering as he possibly can. Praise God that he who is for us is greater than he who is against us. Pardon me. God is perfectly capable of knocking the wheels off the enemy's schemes as we trust him and walk in his path for us, the path of the cross. Our job isn't to turn back and try to fight on our own, but to continue forward, trusting the Savior to defend us in ways that very often we couldn't even have imagined. The Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Very important detail. Because this is the Lord's way. Remember that the crossing of the Red Sea is a picture of Christ's death and resurrection and our baptism into his death by the Spirit of God. God has completely defeated the enemy through the death of Christ, and he defeats the enemy in our own lives through our faith. In Christ's death for us, we identify with Christ in his death. The scriptural language is often, we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. We reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. And then Moses stretches out his hand over the sea again. Think back, if you will, for a moment to the very first act of Pharaoh against Israel at the beginning of the book of Exodus. When Pharaoh noticed that the slave population of Israel was growing into a vast number, he commanded that the male children be thrown into the water of the Nile and drowned. Now, God is paying Egypt back with interest. The Egyptians had flirted and flirted with danger after danger. Don't we do this sometimes in our own lives? And now they had flirted beyond escape. The time to talk of fleeing was past. The trap was about to spring. The ordinary course of nature was about to reassert itself. Why should God Hold back the sea one moment longer simply to preserve a host of proud and dangerous men. The great lesson here is to be wise in time. Flee from the wrath to come in time. Today, there is still that possibility. But when God's wrath comes down, Who will flee then? Just as God could have opened the Red Sea without Moses, God could have closed it just as easily without him. This was God's vindication of Moses, openly showing the people that Moses was his spokesman. God's word is the final authority. If you take nothing away from this message, take that away. God's word is the final authority. And for the children of Israel, that is what Moses represented because God spoke to them through him. In addition to this, God was giving each of us a deeper lesson. Moses was the great lawgiver. And throughout the scriptures, Moses represents God's perfect standard of holiness as revealed in the Ten Commandments. It was the law that condemned the enemy to death in the Red Sea. God's people passed through by faith, we learn in Hebrews 11. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Not one remained, it said. Of those that entered into the sea, not one. And I think that's an important detail as well. I'll quote here from Pastor Jay Parker because he says it so well. What a solemn sight that young morning looked on. The wind had dropped, the rod is stretched out. The sea returns to its strength, and after a few moments' despairing struggle, all is over, and the sun, as it climbs, looks down upon the unbroken stretch of quiet sea, bearing no trace of the awful work which it had done, or of the quenched hatred and fury which slept beneath it. I'll conclude this section up to verse 28 quoting from the Apostle Paul in a series of verses from chapters 6 7 and 8 of Romans now I want you to keep in mind what the Red Sea and its crossing is trying to point us to as we read through these verses we begin in chapter 6 verses 3 and 4 or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Over to chapter 7, verse 4. I would really like to read all three chapters in their completeness, but it's, it would take too long. Chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Down a few verses. Verses 8 through 12. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found To bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Over to chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then to conclude chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's almost like 6, 7, and 8 are a commentary on the crossing of the Red Sea. God reveals now his accomplished redemption to his people in our final verses 29, 30, and 31. Israel saw the Egyptians dead, on the seashore. It is one thing for the children of Israel to know that they have left their Egyptian taskmasters behind them. It is altogether something much more powerful to see their corpses strewn upon the shores of the sea, never to enslave them again. And oppressed people are slow to believe they are free while their tyrants still live. God wanted Israel to know that their oppressors were not just part of their old lives. They were dead. For you and I, if we have trusted Christ, God does not merely want us to know that our old life in this world has been left behind. He certainly does. But he has laid it bare for us in all its gruesome rot. I did not know truly how vile a sinner I was until I came to Christ. I saw myself before that as an Egyptian charioteer resplendent in my fine uniform drawn by the finest of horses In the finest of chariots. It is once I came to Christ. And looked back at my old life. I saw the corpse. Of my old life. Against the glory of Christ. And then I was set free. Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which, here's the key, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Although this description in our text may seem a little gruesome to our modern sensibilities, God gave Israel a powerful confirmation of his deliverance by allowing them to be witnesses to the death of their old lives of bondage in Egypt. And he has given the Christian the same privilege. As the Holy Spirit moves into our lives and teaches us who Christ really is, when we compare our old lives to that description of by God's spirit of Christ himself, it is then that we look at the rotting corpse of our old life on the, dead, on the Red Seashore. A New Testament parallel or another one might be found in Colossians chapter 2. We'll read verses 11 through 15 of Colossians 2. In him, Christ you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He wanted us to know the magnitude of his victory. In the same way that God the Father, wanting Israel to know the magnitude of his victory, allowed them to witness the corpses of the dead Egyptians on the shore of the sea. You are no longer in bondage. Those that kept you in bondage are not just forgotten. They are dead. Christian, if you're struggling with some pet sin, and it seems to revive itself and insinuate itself into your life time after time, you need to, at that point, reckon yourself to be dead Sin. You need to remind yourself this sin is dead. It is no longer my slave master. Do we stumble and do we fall? Yes, we do. The Bible tells us very clearly, 1 John 1 9. But we need to be of a mind obedient to the scriptures that says, this sin no longer has dominion over me. It's dead. And not only is the sin dead, I am dead to it because I died in Christ. And now I am alive in him, a slave not of sin, but of righteousness. F.B. Meyer gives us a further word of encouragement regarding this verse. He says, this principle applies to the day-to-day struggles of life for the Christian. Though the pressure of your trial is almost unbearable, you will one day see your Egyptian dead. The Lord saved Israel. Aren't you thankful today that this scripture tells us that the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians? Aren't you thankful that it does not say, Moses saved Israel because Moses is dead and buried and his bones have turned to dust along with every other major religious leader throughout history and we cannot rely on any of them to save today but the Lord who lives forever and ever as the great I am is the one who saves When all other hope is lost. The Lord saved Israel. Then it goes on to say the people feared and believed. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These people had been given a good start. Maybe the best of starts. The children of Israel had been given the immense privilege of seeing the mighty power of God at work in Egypt, and they responded by fearing the Lord. Truly, this was the only reasonable response. And verse 31 tells us that they also believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, this might be a bit more troubling for some of us, I am tempted to ask in my heart, if they believed the Lord, why didn't it change how they lived? (coughs) We don't have to read much further into the book of Exodus. And we see the people rebelling and complaining and longing to go back to Egypt. We even see them make a golden calf and worship it as the God who delivered them out of Egypt. This believing, whatever it was, didn't seem to be the kind that produced lasting change. So I have to acknowledge from the entirety of the story of Israel that this belief mentioned here was mere mental assent. Or acknowledging in the mind that some fact is true. Verse 31 does say after all that they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. They could not deny the presence and power of God. There he was day and night a pillar of cloud and fire just as they could could not deny the presence and authority of Moses. This tells me that belief leading to salvation is more than mere mental assent. It is more than what the children of Israel did here. After all, when Paul spoke to the jailer in Acts 16, he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The belief Paul is talking about is more than just mental assent. After all, Paul had a powerful, undeniable experience of the presence of the Lord as well. But Paul's is a belief that is transformative. It is a belief that says, I place everything I am in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him from now through eternity. When Jesus first called the disciples, They followed him, it says, because they believed on him. Yet, when he accomplished his first miracle by turning the water into wine in John chapter 2, the text says again, his disciples believed on him. Later in John chapter 16, Jesus began to speak plainly to his disciples rather than in parables. And again, they said, by this, we believe that you came forth from God. And after his resurrection, he said to Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I'm not sure I'm going to say this well, because it's difficult to put into words. And I'm sure some of you will be critical of it. My heart is in the right place. Let me do the best I can here. Saving belief involves more than just mental assent to some body of knowledge about Jesus. Saving belief involves acknowledgement of our sin before God, our submission to his will to turn from our sin, and a commitment to follow Christ. And I believe these things happen simultaneously and instantly if we are open and sincere before God in our plea to him to save us regardless of whether we know exactly the right words or not. Our salvation doesn't depend on our vocabulary. It rests solely on Christ's finished work on the cross. We simply and thankfully trust that his death was in our place for our sin. Some concluding remarks. God never brings his people into positions from which retreat is necessary or in which advance is impossible. Say it again. God never brings his people into positions from which retreat is necessary or in which advance is impossible. We might do it to ourselves when we rely on our own understanding, but God won't do it to us. If you are a child of God through faith in Christ, you have the privilege of knowing that God has a path forward for you in which retreat will never be necessary, nor advancement impossible. He may put a Red Sea in our path, and things may even look hopeless for a time. Don't kid yourself. God didn't put us on this planet to cruise through with no hardship. That's a pipe dream promoted by feel-good charlatans and false teachers. We all know what kind of people we would be without hardship. It wouldn't be much different than a child that grows up and never goes through any diff- anything difficult or must never do anything uncomfortable. Everything he wants, his parents buy for him. And anything he doesn't like, they remove for him. We have names for these types of children, don't we? And we use them because we're jealous that life seems so easy for them. But we don't envy the kinds of men and women they become later in life, do we? So God, knowing what sort of people we are, brings difficulties and tests into our lives to show us what kind of people we can be, should we choose to submit to his will in these challenges. God is omniscient. He knows what kind of people we could be, but our hearts are desperately wicked and we cannot even know it ourselves. God in his grace shows us what and who we are and we should thank him for it, even if it's tough. So the next time you are faced with some red sea of life, embrace the challenge, not with arrogance, thinking that you have somehow managed in your own strength, but in humility, knowing that it is God's mercy that opened a path for you when you were utterly incapable of swimming across. But above all this morning, remember that this story is about Christ. It is through the red sea of his blood that we cross through death Into life. And had God not himself provided the way, there would be no way at all. Before you came to Christ, you were hemmed in on all sides with no hope of deliverance. It is the cross of Christ that delivers man from slavery and brings him through death unto eternal life. Therefore, Let us always have an attitude of thankfulness, whatever other difficulties we may face in this life, because this life is the blink of an eye compared to our eternal future with Christ in the place that he has gone on ahead to prepare for those who love God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for each person here that has had the opportunity to hear your word. I pray that whatever words were mine would not get in the way of your message directly to the hearts of your people sitting here today through your word. We thank you that your word is living and it's powerful, that as we read it and as your spirit uses it to work in our lives, it acts as a as a scalpel, cutting away that which needs to be gotten rid of, the rot, and leaving behind that which can be worked with, the health. This, of course, is painful, and it can leave scar tissue. But in the end, Lord, we can be people that are just a little bit more like our Savior. So we thank you for your word this morning and its power. Thank you for each person here. I once again acknowledge that not one is here by accident. Whatever it was that occurred this morning that just might have kept you from attending this morning, but you're still here, know that God wanted each person to be here this morning. So, Lord, I thank you that you have done this. I thank you that There are no accidents in your economy. That you are sovereign. And that as we submit to your sovereign will, we can live lives of tremendous blessing. Lives of peace and love and joy. Lives that are just filled with the riches that Christ provided at the cross and in his resurrection. In the life that he now lives. Praying for us. As we go from this place. I pray that. This story of the Red Sea crossing. And all that it is involved. Would continue. To shine light. On the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel. And that this truth would be so powerful. And so transformative. In the lives of your people that others would come to know Christ as a result and give glory to the Father. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.